Hello and welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, the third episode of our Tour de Force prostate extravaganza. We've gone through The Lord of the Rings, Back to the Future, and every other trilogy that turns into a dozen episodes. As always, I am here with my co-host, good friend, Dr. Michael Fernando. How are you, Michael? I'm good, Josh. And it's very special in that we are actually recording from the same room. I don't think this has ever happened before on this show. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah, it's a bit weird. Um, maybe, weird. <laughs> maybe we won't have to do any editing for once. Oh, you know, that's not true. And our listeners will be very happy to hear that I will not be inflicting a impression on them I did, <laughs> I, I did Alec Guinness and then I did Ian McKellen but no impressions today because my Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade impressions did not pass muster but today <laughs> today we're going to talk about the final phase of our prostate cancer epic trilogy which is later line therapies in the castration resistant space and I think the biggest development over recent times Josh is the creation pretty much from scratch to be honest I mean there was a bit of precedent with uh, the use of radium 223 which is quite an old treatment but the biggest leap forward in the heavily pre-treated space has been that of lutetium PSMA and you've got a a couple of trials uh, that have several excellent discussion points to go through. I do and this week I am lucky enough to I have had some experience with these drugs, but they also understand a couple of the, maybe the shortcomings of the specific trials. Which is why he's doing it rather than me. We were talking about this before the podcast and I was like, Michael, how often have you given lutetium? And my answer was never, because in Victoria, in Australia, where I work, it's only actually manufactured at one site and it happens to not be the site that I work at. Josh, yeah. on the other hand, works at the PSMA Centre of Excellence. New South Wales, PSMA Centre of Excellence in New South Wales. And so he gets to see this all the time. And so maybe the luster has worn off somewhat for him. Look, potentially, and I'll, doing a prostate fellowship also means I'm, I'm exposed to this a fair bit. I'm going to talk first about vision, which is a phase three trial, and then mention therapy due to some contrasts and comparisons. Michaels, we've already spoken about metastatic prostate cancer, but I loved this one line in the New England Journal of Medicine article for vision, which is metastatic carter-resistant prostate cancer remains incurable and fatal, despite the availability of multiple classes of therapy that delay disease progression and prolong life. That sounds like something that could be used to describe any metastatic cancer. This is Pretty it. Much. And I was like, I feel this was not a required line, but and that's not the trial, but it was just an interesting introduction. So what we're talking today is about lutetium 177, which is a radioligand therapy. And what it can do is it can target prostate cancer cells while sparing most normal tissues in patients who have been selected with the use of imaging to confirm radionuclide binding. So what is PSMA? So it's a transmembrane glutamate carboxypeptidase that can be highly expressed on prostate cells. High PSMA expression is a poor independent prognostic biomarker throughout prostate cancer and atomical across sites. Metastatic lesions that are PSMA positive in most patients with 
metastatic carcinogenic prostate cancer, and high expression has been independently associated with reduced survival. The way I've been taught with this specific drug and the way I communicate to the patients, it's a bit of a lock and key approach is that if you have a high PSMA avidity on your cancer, this is the prostate cancer, then this treatment is likely to work. And it's kind of you're sticking that key within that lock or you've got that receptor there and that's why it works. That seems to be a pretty global metaphor because I've heard that lock and key description used before as well. Yeah, maybe they all go to the same like conference. They go to the same talks. They, They really do. So what is lutetium? It delivers beta particle radiation selectively to PSMA positive cells and the surrounding microenvironment. Previous studies before this had encouraging biochemical and radiographic response rates. Also, importantly, reduced pain, low toxicities on multiple early phase trials. So let's talk about vision. It was a prospective, open-label, randomized phase three trial investigating efficacy and safety of lutetium plus standard of care in a population previously treated with metastatic carcinogenic prostate cancer with PSMA avidity. Michael, I think this is the first thing to talk about is standard of care. We've spoken about this before the our discussion today, but what did you think would be an appropriate standard of care for a phase three trial? Well, by definition, the, the comparator arm in a good phase three trial should be the, I guess, the standard of care for that drug in the context that you're going to use it. And so in the context that PSMA has come to be used, and this is a bit of a post hoc ergo propter hoc type thing, but the I would think that an appropriate control arm would be something along the lines of cabazitaxel or uh, a later line therapy or even, I guess, placebo, given that we're targeting patients who have been heavily pretreated. Yeah, and that's right. And I think it's interesting because their standard of care was really approved hormonal agents, including abiraterone and enzalutamide, bisphosphonate, radiation therapy, and although they haven't mentioned it, they would include ADT in this as well. But even now when PSMA is a bit down the track, because when was the study, when was Vision uh, published? I think it was 2018, 2019. So even... four or five years down the track where we have quite a bit more clinical experience with lutetium PSMA, you wouldn't offer it over abiraterone or enzalutamide to a naive patient, would you? You, you wouldn't. It's actually 2021. 2021, it was Okay, so, so, so two or three years rather than four or five, but the point remains the same. It, it does. It really does. And so I think that's something to kind of highlight as the first point of discussion. So inclusion, as you would expect, patients that had carcinogenic prostate cancer had at least one metastatic lesion that you could identify on CT, MRI, or bone scan. They would have to have progressed through at least one or more androgen receptor pathway inhibitors and one or two taxane regimens. They also had to have PSMA avidity, which was greater than that of the liver parenchyma in one or more metastatic lesions. So despite having progressed through one or more antiandrogen agents, mm. the comparison was still antiandrogen agents. Exactly. And I think in other places in the world, they definitely do switch mm. the second generation antiandrogens, such as enzalutamide and abiraterone. There, I think, I think there is still a dearth of high quality evidence to support that. And we don't do that in Australia. But this still would have come out after 
one of the studies I'm going to talk about, which is CARD, which is cabazitaxel, compared again with that androgen, novel antiandrogen switch. In that study, it showed that the antiandrogen switch was less effective than cabazitaxel. So you could say, given that it, that that study was published in 2019, the control arm is potentially getting a bit of a bit of the short end of the stick here. Yeah, I really think it did. And I think there were people that dropped out in that control arm throughout this study, which is an issue when you're looking at statistics. Absolutely. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival and overall survival, and they were alternative primary endpoints, which I have never seen. No, I haven't either. My understanding is that if either of these came back significant, it would be a positive trial rather than both. This was actually changed in the early stages of recruitment where they added imaging-based progression-free survival as an alternate endpoint. And I wonder if they did this because they were worried that it might not have been as effective as hypothesized. It's always, I mean, look, it's we don't want to get our tinfoil hats on and start throwing around conspiracies because protocol amendments are common. nothing new. They're very common, even in the prostate space we've talked about enzymet previously where they initially in the initial protocol didn't allow docetaxel therapy or previous therapies but then docetaxel came out it was shown to be very effective and so they allowed it in a in a protocol update but it is a little bit concerning when you're changing the endpoints after you've started the study that's it it's a bit concerning but again look the outcomes of this trial are positive and so I'm giving away the glorious end of our discussion, but it's just something to think about when you're analysing a trial. It does make you ask why. Exactly. Interestingly, characteristics-wise, things I did want to highlight, about 40% of patients had had two prior regimens, 55% had had at least one regimen in the imaging-based progression-free survival, including antiandrogen. When you look at the taxane therapy, it was 97.9% had docetaxel in pretty much both arms and about 44.9% had had two regimens. So that's pretty good. So they've gone through all the standard of care therapies, really. Median follow-up was 20.9 months. And let's talk about results. Which Josh has already spoiled slightly. I spoiled for myself. <laughs> Letitium PSMA plus standard of care significantly prolonged as compared with standard therapy imaging-based progression-free survival with a median PFS of 8.7 versus 3.4 months, showing a hazard ratio of 0.4, so it's 60% more effective than the standard of care arm. Overall survival was 15.3 versus 11.3 months with a hazard ratio for death of 0.62, so that's 38% more effective than standard of care and, of course, was statistically significant. The key secondary endpoints were also pretty good, the adverse events of grade three or above was higher in PSMA of 52.7% versus 38%, but quality of life was not adversely affected. Secondary endpoints, the median time to first symptomatic skeletal event was 11.5 months versus 6.8 months in the standard of care and you know 50% more effective there, which was great. And you saw a complete response in 9.2% of the letitium PSMA and none in the control arm. <laughs> Which comes back to what we were saying before. Yeah, which is, you know, it's a control arm. It's not the best control arm. So we can, in summary, sort of say that lutetium PSMA is definitely a positive, efficacious treatment for patients with pretreated prostate cancer, but there's probably 
room for a bit of quibbling on how effective. That's it. Toxicities, as this is a new drug, I think it's worthwhile mentioning some things. Fatigue and dry mouth. So fatigue, all grades, 43%. Dry mouth, 38%, followed by nausea of 35% of all grades. Very easily manageable, the nausea and the, the dry mouth. If you use something like Xylemilts and mouth care and kind of lots of sips of water, that does improve quite effectively from personal experience. And you've got to watch out for things like thrombocytopenia and diarrhea as sort of a rule. But I'll talk more about that compared to cabazitaxel now. Michael, anything else you wanted to bring up about this? I did want to ask a question, Josh. And Another that was a question. And you can't get it. We, you can't get away from them now that we're in the same room. The question I wanted to ask is, what was the extent of disease in the patient population for vision? Did they allow for patients who had visceral metastases versus just bone metastases? And if so, is there a significant different is there a significant difference in the efficacy of PSMA for patients who have uh, more extensive disease? Just because we know in prostate cancer, if you have visceral disease, that is a poor prognostic marker. And so if that is an area that PSMA can address for patients who have been heavily pre-treated, then that would only increase its attractiveness as a late-line therapy. Michael, that's a great question. I actually did go through those. So when you look at sites of disease for the vision trial, what we saw is 90% had bone mets, bone metastases, 50% had lymph node metastases, 12% had liver and another 9% had lung, and I'm, I'm talking purely about the intervention arm here. And the median PSA range, just out of curiosity, was 0 to just under 7,000, so that was quite high. And the median time since diagnosis was about 7 years in both arms. So they didn't stratify it according to extent of disease, but based on that, you can see most patients had at least bone involvement, and quite a few had lymph node involvement as well which would be expected in... In prostate cancer, absolutely. And metastatic carcerate-resistant prostate cancer. The next trial I want to talk about, and a homegrown Australian trial... Hang on, let me just uh, cue up the Australian national anthem. That was a great, great rendition, Michael. <laughs> no, he didn't do anything. <laughs> um, we'll add it in post. The therapy trial was a phase two, and it was multi-centre, blinded, randomised. Men were given either lutetium, PSMA, or... Cabazitaxel. And I already like this because this is kind of the setting we're looking at for this trial, right? Which is you've gone through abiraterone or enzalutamide, you might not have a trial, what's the next therapy? You've had docetaxel earlier on in your treatment. So I quite like that. I'm not just being biased because I know half the people on this trial. <laughs> and they may or may not be listening to the podcast. They probably are not. Mm. They have much better <laughs> things to do with their limited time. That's it. And so people were given PSMA, which is given every six weeks, which I didn't mention initially, up to usually six cycles, or cabazitaxel, which is every three weeks, up to 10 cycles. The primary endpoint for this was, was PSA response of a reduction of elite least 50%. And look, it was statistically significant. You saw 65 versus 37% had a PSMA response and 66 versus 37% in the intention to treat with a 29% difference. So that's quite good. So that's significant, really. And that, that it was a positive endpoint for these trials. The other really important thing to talk about is the toxicities compared to chemotherapy. What we saw 
was 33% of patients in lutetium had a toxicity versus 53% in the cabazitaxel arm. It's more tolerable than cabazi just on you know face value looking at the number of toxicities. Which I'm sure would correspond with your clinical experience because my clinical experience of cabazitaxel is that it is very, very toxic for patients who are generally pretty frail and comorbid by this point. That's it. And Michael hit the nail on the head. They're comorbid. They've had multiple lines of therapy. They're not going to tolerate another line of chemo that well, or maybe their bone marrow won't. I do have a dirty comparison here in front of me, Michael, you know, vision versus therapy, phase three versus phase two. Pre-treatment was interesting. The therapy Everyone had had prior docetaxel, only 15% had had abiraterone or enzalutamide, whereas about 50% in the vision um, had abi or enza. What we found, though, was that the objective response rate was pretty similar in both arms, about 50%, um, which is really good, right? And I don't have that here, but I did read that like the objective response rate is far less in cabazitaxel than lutetium. Absolutely agree. And 50% in second or third line therapy as a response rate for any treatment of any cancer is definitely a very positive outcome. 100%. I I think so. Anyway, I think just knowing that the toxicities are more in the cabazitaxel arm than in the lutetium arm, realistically, there are limitations probably in both studies. Hmm. I agree. Neither of them are perfect. That's exactly right. But again, it's another potential option. There was an update for the trial, which was the therapy trial, which came out a little bit later. So PFS was statistically significant versus Kabazi. And as you can see, I've got the results here over a median follow-up of 18.4 months. PFS was 19%. I think at one year, essentially didn't have progression, was 19% versus 3% with a hazard ratio of 0.63 favoring the intervention arm, which is quite good, Michael. Yeah. So if you're selling that to a patient, you can say, and they would have been through the systemic therapy ringer probably multiple times by this point, but you can say we're getting to the, to the pointy end of treatment, I guess. Mm. And yet this lutetium PSMA still has a potentially a one in five chance of you not only being alive at 12 months, but your cancer not having moved at 12 months. And just to talk about objective response rate, so just under 50% for lutetium, 24% for cabazitaxel. So that's great. Toxicities-wise, I have a table here, which I can link in the description. And what you can see, yes, thrombocytopenia was high in the lutetium, dry mouth was much higher, but most of the other symptoms like diarrhea, dyskesia, neuropathy, fatigue was high in the cabazitaxel arm. And does this trial data correspond with what you see in the real world, Josh? We know that toxicities in trials frequently have absolutely no bearing on how things go in real life. Mm-hmm. But are, there, is, are you seeing a similar sort of toxicity profile with the patients that you're actually giving PSMA to? I think from my clinical experience psma is generally much better tolerated also kabazi for us is generally a last line effort because we usually would look for a trial or another combination therapy to try and manage this patient's prostate cancer if we can beforehand so that's stealing my conclusion there sorry that's that's probably a bias in my experience but generally dry mouth very 
manageable, nausea, very manageable. Fatigue is such a difficult treatment option. And sometimes, unfortunately, people have to live with this because it's essentially none of our drugs are that good yet to kind of not have that fatigue and they've got extensive cancer. Fatigue is going to be a risk for whatever anti-cancer treatment we give, as well as, as you mentioned, for the cancer itself. So it's very hard for our patients to avoid fatigue, regardless of what we do to fight their cancer. That's exactly right. But I think that summarises my two trials, limitations with both, but very much an option for your patients as a down-the-line therapy. Michael, you got the short straw this week to talk about cabazitaxel. I did. Um, And I'm glad I didn't have to. So tell me all about it. Well, yes. I mean, the writing was on the wall when we were doing PSMA, as we said at the start, but I do have experience with cabazitaxel and my experience is that it ain't great. But basically there's a, a smorgasbord of several trials that I wanted to talk about related to cabazitaxel. And the main thing that I want to do, I'm not going to go into depth about any of them because at this point, I reckon that anti-cancer treatment at the nth line, end of the line uh, stage tends to be much more personalized. And in cabazitaxel's place, the frequent choices are cabazitaxel, as Josh said, a clinical trial or best supportive care. And frequently that is the choice that we're, we're left with. And you're always going to tailor that to the patient. So I'm not going to go into too much detail, but there are a couple of nuggets that I want to convey for these four trials. So just to summarize cabazitaxel or to introduce our heavyweight challenger, or well, I guess <laughs> at, at this point, at the point of PSMA, cabazitaxel would be the reigning champion and then promptly got knocked out in the first round. But cabazitaxel is still one of several agents that have been shown to improve outcomes in patients with prostate cancer after docetaxel. There have been multiple studies that have demonstrated this. However, because of a lack of of direct comparisons to docetaxel and the novel antiandrogen therapies, it remains a later line therapy. And as Josh has mentioned, it is really starting to be superseded by PSMA as well. There are four studies that really tell cabazitaxel's story, and I start as is always at the beginning. I hear it's a very good place to start. <laughs> With the Tropics trial from 2007, and this was cabazitaxel plus prednisolone versus mitoxandrone plus prednisolone, yet another treatment on this episode that I have never used. I was going to say mitoxandrone. I've read about it occasionally. In a, but in a history book. In a history book, an oncology history book. Yes, those really fly off the shelves. Don't Must they? be terrible if we've never seen it. Yeah, so, this, so mitoxandrone... For our newer listeners, or to take some of our more seasoned veteran listeners down a trip a trip down memory lane, was the agent that was superseded first by docetaxel in the pivotal TAX327 trial that really signaled a sea change in the treatment of hormone refractory, as it was known back in those days, prostate cancer. So 2007, mitoxandrone is still hanging around, but here comes cabazitaxel, which is a uh, quote-unquote novel uh, taxane anti-cancer agent. And so they compared the two. This predates a lot of the novel anti-androgen therapies. I think Stampede and Chartered and Latitude would have been maybe in their, in their early germinating phases by this point, but they certainly weren't widely available. 
quite a large study, certainly the largest I'm going to talk about, with 755 patients randomised one-to-one to receive either of these two agents. And patients had to have received docetaxel previously in the castration resistance space. Again, no mention of novel antiandrogen therapies. The median overall survival did favour cabazitaxel over mitoxandrone, 15 versus 12.7 months. And the PFS also favoured cabazitaxel. And brace yourself because this is a good number. It's 2.8 months versus oh 1.4 months. Now, compare that. Cast your minds back, if you will, to our last two episodes where we've been waxing lyrical about novel antiandrogens. And I can guarantee you none of the progression-free survivals or the overall survivals for that matter got even close to those numbers. Those are very grim numbers. Yeah, they're terrible. They're almost cholangiocarcinoma, gastric gastric stuff. A lot of those, what we're now calling orphan cancers, we're we're talking about that sort of range. Cabazitaxel was more toxic with higher rates of dose delay and dose reduction compared to mitoxandrone, and the majority of side effects were hematological, which does correspond with my clinical experience, probably given the setting that we use it in, heavily treated patients frequently with bone marrow infiltration. If you have an agent that is going to cause cytopenias of any kind, someone with a slightly dicky bone marrow is is, um, going to be more at risk of suffering those sorts of adverse events. Michael? For the novice in my xantrome therapy, and I I don't know very much about this. Me neither. I'm probably not going to answer. Evidently, given that it's less toxic than cabazitaxel. Was there any discussion in that trial talking about using it as a subsequent chemotherapy line? There was. I don't think specifically in those those terms. Mm. But the deluge of new agents means that if cabazitaxel is relegated to the the, the back, back row of yeah. the theatre, then mitoxandrone is out the theatre door and around the corner. Still it, waiting for tickets. Still waiting for tickets mm-hmm. that will never come. It's really never used in clinical practice. I mean, I think I've seen it once in a patient who managed to cling on to a good ECOG status despite having every treatment under the sun and for some reason he wasn't suitable for trials and so they're like, hey, let's pull out the mitoxandrone again. That sort of makes sense though because... As you said, by the time you reach Kabazi these days, you're going to have had four, maybe more lines of therapy. You're going to be tired. Yes. And your body's going to really question its involvement with any oncologi- oncologist. It's going to be forward. wanting to take its ball and go home. Completely agree. And like I said at the start, when you're getting to the Kabazitaxel stage, you're really weighing up the pros and cons of Kabazitaxel versus best supportive care. Mm-hmm. Frequently, those tend to be the, the two options. We jump forward to 2015 with a an interesting study by uh, um, Schurst, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, um, and colleagues, uh, which aimed to explore the effect of prior novel antiandrogen therapy on sensitivity to cabazitaxel. And the reason for this study is there were some in vivo studies prior that demonstrated that if you have novel antiandrogen therapies, which have now exploded onto the scene and again, change the face of treatment, you are potentially creating cross-resistance to docetaxel, which probably backs up clinical experience because patients who have a a quote-unquote docetaxel re-challenge tend not to last very long. Mm. 
Um, you can only give so much docetaxel before it really stops working. And there's evidence to suggest that novel antiandrogen therapies might accelerate this process. So they said, hey, is the same thing happening with cabazitaxel? Because if it is, given the ubiquity of novel antiandrogen therapies, we may as well just not use it at all. Who knows, Mitoxandra might come back. <laughs> um, and they used actually a, a, a cohort from an ongoing phase two trial ongoing at the time called the Cabaresque, which was not referring to a 1966 musical, that's Cabaret, but it was a trial examining the addition of budesonide to cabazitaxel and prednisolone to reduce the incidence and severity of diarrhea. So they sort of piggybacked on that trial, used the cohort that had not been progressed on the trial, on the treatment, uh, and it was before the trial had wrapped up. So they weren't using any existing efficacy data. And in summary, the primary endpoints were the PSA response rate and the overall survival. PSA response rate was defined as a reduction of greater than or equal to 50% in the PSA from baseline. 114 patients were enrolled, 39% of which had had previous novel antiandrogen therapy. And to cut a long story short, the PSA response rate, the PFS and the OS were not significantly different. So the conclusion was that in this population of patients, they still had a sensitivity to cabazitaxel regardless of whether they had or had not had previous novel antiandrogen therapy. Well, that's quite interesting because you think with the mutation burden and also potentially changing rates of production in clonal populations, there might be a difference. Yeah. And look, it's it's not the most robustly designed trial purely by the fact that it was piggybacking onto a cohort that was de- that was designed to investigate something completely different. Mm. It is an interesting it is an interesting way of conducting a trial, and it's also an interesting conclusion to reach. Twenty fifteen, cabazitaxel's place in the hierarchy of treatment remains tenuously intact. The Next study, or the next two studies, I should say, are both from 2019. And the first I've mentioned previously in, on this episode, which is the CARD trial. And this was cabazitaxel versus an ASRI, or a novel antiandrogen switch. So it took patients who had progressed on either ABI or ENZA and randomized them to receive cabazitaxel or the corresponding novel antiandrogen. I really stole your, 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 you um, really your did. thunder. You really did steal my thunder. Um, That's all right. I'm sure I'll get you back in the future. And this is, I think, really the reason that in Australia, the approval for these novel agents, despite them being a few years old now, still remains that unless you have toxicity as the reason for a switch, you cannot use another novel antiandrogen if you have progressed on the first one. 255 patients in this study, and the primary endpoint was was image-guided progression-free survival which is interesting, but I do appreciate that it is a narrow focus that might not be needed in other cancers because PSA, by definition, can be used as a marker of progression. Almost ubiquitously, although there are, like everything on oncology, caveats to that. I think people who have small cell neuroendocrine components of their prostate cancer might not always express, and rarely, rarely I've seen just with people on novel anti-androgens, sometimes you do have to do imaging if you're a bit worried. And I think it'd sort of be standard just to, if you have concerns for progression, and that's usually heralded by an increasing PSMA, usually on successive measurements, 
you would do imaging to confirm. That's it. I don't think I've met an oncologist who would make a treatment decision based on PSA by itself. Yeah, lots of. I don't think anyone's as much enough of a cowboy or cowgirl to really head down that path. Absolutely. Uh, the secondary endpoints for CARD were overall survival, response rate, and safety. Pretty standard stuff. So the the median uh, image-guided progression-free survival was eight months for cabazitaxel versus 3.7 months in the control arm. Ouch. So, so again, this data really informs the thought that switching and less for toxicity reasons, if you're resistant to one novel antiandrogen therapy, of, at least of the current generation, you're probably going to be mostly resistant to all of them. This very well may turn out to be antiquated in the future as more agents come to uh, fruition or creation, uh, similar to similar to allotinib and jafitinib being superseded by osimertinib. But at this point, you really are one and done with regards to novel antiandrogens. The overall survival, interestingly, was not too different. It was 13 and a half versus 11 months, so not, not, too, not too different. But the PSA-specific response rate was 36 versus 13.5. Yeah, so given the biology of prostate cancer when looking at overall survival and a drug that probably doesn't work, I think you can say you are controlling the cancer a fair bit better with the with chemotherapy. The, with the tackle. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think in any trial, you're always going to have those few outliers that for some reason the biology just doesn't behave how we would expect it to, and that probably accounts for at least the majority of those uh, 13.5% of patients who responded. And the final study is something a bit different. It's a study of carboplatin plus cabazitaxel which we've mentioned once or twice previously as the absolute end-of-the-line end line therapy in certain places. So Corn uh, et al. Um, published a Phase 1 to 2 trial comparing carboplatin uh, and cabazitaxel versus cabazitaxel alone. I won't talk about the Phase 1 component very much. I'd only included nine patients and was primarily for dose-finding and toxicity purposes as Phase 1 trials are. But the main outcome of that was that a carboplatin dose of an area under the curve of four was chosen as the dose, just so we know, because in lung cancer, the standard dose is AUC5. A lot of the trials, such as in Power 150, you use AUC6. Mm. And of course, there's the notorious one-shot AUC7 carboplatin in the testicular cancer space. So significantly lower than that, which is probably good because, again, you're coming to patients who are very fragile in the bone marrow department, shall we say. Josh, just to sort of diverge a little bit, have you have you seen carboplatin and cabazitaxel used in combination? Once. Do you remember the uh, circumstances of that? Yes, it was a patient who had been admitted to hospital with an exceptionally high burden of disease. You know, he looked terrible, his bloods weren't great, it was an aggressive prostate cancer. I can't remember the prior lines of therapy, but it, they think, would have been numerous. Yeah, from my reading, and Michael, I'm happy for you to correct me because it's been a while. I think there was a 20% increased efficacy when using carboplatin on top of cabazitaxel, but I'm very happy for you to edit that, edit that out if I am completely off the mark. No, you're completely on the mark and once again, completely stealing my thunder, Josh. So... 
that that's interesting because the the only time I've seen this used really is for patients who actually progress on cabazitaxel as sort of a add-on. So if they remain relatively fit, as in fit enough to tolerate carboplatin, maybe they have some exclusion criteria to trials. I've seen uh, centres where the oncologists add carboplatin onto the cabazitaxel. And look, maybe that was the case, but I just remember this guy when we were trying to sort out dual chemotherapy for him. And so very much he might have progressed on Kabazi in, in that circumstance. Yeah. But the reason I'm sort of harping on about this is that the Carbo-Kabazi trial of 2019 actually excluded patients who had previously been treated with carboplatin or Kabazitaxel. So it's really sort of the first time you're considering using cabazitaxel to consider using um, carboplatin at the same time. In the phase two component, 160 patients were recruited and randomised one-to-one. All patients received cabazitaxel, prednisolone, and notably bone marrow support with GCSF. So they're using that up front, which is forward thinking, but also hints at the toxicity, uh, the Mm. expected toxicity of these agents. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival. Other endpoints included overall response rate, overall survival, and safety toxicity. The median PFS was 7.3 versus 4.5 months. The overall response rate, Josh has already very rudely spoiled this for the second time, but it was a 20% difference. It was 61 versus 41%, which seems a bit high, if I'm honest. Yeah, it probably is, and I think... It's an early phase study, right? So I'm not going to ruin the next set, which will be talking about toxicities, but my my hypothesis is that we don't use this because it's just going to be really difficult to manage. We don't use it because it's going to, it's difficult to manage, but also in terms of the, the thing that everyone really cares about, which is overall survival, didn't really add too much. Mm. Uh, the overall survival was 18.5 versus 17.3 months. So in real terms, you're adding seven, eight weeks of life. Now, in terms of toxicity, interestingly, there were similar rates of grade one to two neutropenia and anemia. The rates of grade three to four were higher in the combination arm. There were also significantly higher rates of thrombocytopenia in the combination arm as well. The other area where there were significantly higher rates of toxicity for the combination arm was GI toxicity, so significantly higher rates of nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain. Really is the carboplatin. That's it. And just hearing that, would I offer every patient that came through the door this this combination? Michael, what would you do? No, no. I, I think that if, and sort of we'll, we'll come to the... Uh, the conclusions for cabazitaxel <laughs> soon, but th- there is a very narrow spectrum of patients that I would consider this combination in. And I think despite the lack of evidence or lack of evidence that I'm aware of, of adding carboplatin to cabazitaxel after progression, that's probably where I would still use the combination where the option is nothing and the patient is still fit enough and keen enough to want further treatment. That's it. It's about a discussion because some patients have huge preferences on how they want their treatment and they want the book and the saucer and the plate and the computer and, and the kitchen sink and the local pharmacy thrown at them. Yep. And so then you, you have to offer this. I think talking about quality of life and the later line of prostate cancer, it really is a conversation though, because these toxicities are significant. You know, carboplatin by itself is 
not the not the easiest thing to tolerate. Absolutely not. An AUC four is not a small dose either. No. It's not the AUC2 of weekly carboplatin in the GI space. So I think between the oncology for the inquisitive mind, MDT, which comprises of two novel oncologists, we would... Very illustrious meeting. We would reserve this for a last-ditch effort, but would always discuss with our colleagues to see if there were any potential trials around. Absolutely. So to summarise cabazitaxel as an agent, because... Honestly, I don't think there's going to be too much more research involving cabazitaxel as a investigative uh, arm going forward. It sort of had its day. It's very brief uh, spot in the spot in the limelight. Cabazitaxel can be used for patients who have progressed following treatment with dosataxel. That's the tropics arm. That's the tropics trial. Have progressed following treatment with a novel antiandrogen without concern of cross resistance. That's that interesting. Uh, that's that interesting SOST trial should be used preferentially over switching to an alternative novel antiandrogen, unless the reason for the initial switch in the first place is toxicity related. That's CARD, and then carboplatin cabazitaxel should only be used in fit patients who have progressed on cabazitaxel alone, um, which which is not really in the scope of the trial. But practically speaking, that is sort of where you're at. I guess the main thing with cabazitaxel is if you are thinking of it, always think of trials. We've had lutetium PSMA and and lutetium PSMA at the moment is being uh, combined with immunotherapy with Ipinevo. There's an ongoing trial called Evolution. There are potentially other newer antiandrogen agents that will allow previous novel antiandrogen therapy. Always shop around for trials when patients have progressed through your abiraterones, your enzalutamides or your darolutamides because they not only may turn out to be more efficacious than cabazitaxel but also delay the, the point where cabazitaxel is the only option, thus potentially saving the patient significant toxicity. Cost-wise, for lutetium, if your patient is willing to fund it, is about $5,000 per cycle. That's Australian dollars, so I don't know how much it costs in the States, and it might be covered already by the FDA. Or certain insurance providers. But here, until such time as we get it on on our subsidy program, it's going to cost $5,000. For six cycles, so that's $30,000 in total? Six cycles. And, of course, there's lots of ongoing questions about the best and optimal delivery of letitium. Do you give all six in sequence? Do you wait until the PSA rises? Do you look for radiographic progression? These are questions I can't answer. Um, Maybe the people who are pioneering these these therapies can, um, but it's just an interesting space. Absolutely. So that that wraps it up for prostate cancer. I think it'll be quite a while before we do another episode on it. <laughs> or we'll probably mention it in a, one of our GU, ASCO or ESMO summaries. But thank you so much for joining us. Join us next week on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, where we will be debuting a new mini-series, I guess, or the first of a, an intermittent mini-series on exceptionally rare cancers. Uh, Our first episode is going to be on adenoid cystic carcinoma. It is an episode that is uncharacteristically low on evidence, but high on grandiose statements and banter. So we hope to see you then. See you then, Michael.
Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonk.com. That's inquisitiveonk.com.